Welcome to Professors Talk Pedagogy, a podcast from the Academy for Teaching and Learning. I'm your host, Christopher Richmond. Professors Talk Pedagogy presents discussions with great professors about pedagogy, curriculum, and learning in order to propel the virtuous cycle of teaching. As we frankly and critically investigate our teaching, we open new lines of inquiry, we engage in conversation with colleagues, and we attune to students' experiences, all of which not only improves our teaching but enriches and motivates ongoing investigation. And so the cycle continues. Today, our guest is Dr. Karina Malavanti, Senior Lecturer and Neuroscience Advisor in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at Baylor University. Dr. Malavanti's research focuses on applied cognition and human memory, looking at issues of legal psychology such as eyewitness memory, and education, addressing issues such as study strategies. Recognized as a Baylor Teaching Fellow in 2018, Dr. Malavanti is active in the Society for Teaching Psychology. We are delighted to have Dr. Malavanti on the show to chat about teaching as an introvert, increasing your awareness as a teacher, reflecting on our teaching, and much more. Karina Malavanti, welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here. Let's begin with a little backstory here and tell our audience why we're having this particular conversation. Time travel with me. It was the spring of 2020, and you had proposed uh, through the Academy for Teaching and Learning doing a faculty interest group. And a faculty interest group is a relatively informal set of discussions where faculty will gather three or four times throughout a semester and look at a text together and discuss it over a meal or something like that a few times but it's a stable group that will meet um, a few times throughout the semester and you had suggested doing a faculty interest group on this text geeky pedagogy by jessamine newhouse geeky pedagogy a guide for intellectuals introverts and nerds who want to be effective teachers so can you give us a little bit of background about why you wanted, why you chose this text and why you wanted to do a discussion group specifically on this issue of introvert as teacher? Absolutely. I really love our Academy for Teaching and Learning because of these opportunities. And this opportunity really spoke to me in that we could have a conversation about effective teaching, but really grounded in our identity. So much of our teaching is about just our, our content and then also the context of student. And that is important. And we'll talk about some of that today. But I also think that there's a lot of conversation uh, around what does it mean to be an excellent teacher? And that's really hard to really grasp. And so um, this text does an awesome job, just truly an awesome job of defining effective teaching and then giving tips on how to actually achieve effective teaching for our students. So I just, I really wanted to do a book on this. And I also thought it would speak more broadly to uh, the campus. So our faculty here that might have identities as a geek, an introvert, or a nerd. So she so lovingly calls us gins. <laughs> yeah, G-I-N. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, everyone will remember, of course, spring 2020, something happened, and we had we had exactly one meeting, if I if I recall correctly. So we 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 just had one meeting, and then COVID changed everybody's lives and and routines. So the faculty interest group didn't really happen as as planned. So I'm hoping that maybe this conversation can help kind of bring some of those things that may have been discussed, uh, uh, you know, to to a more public 
forum here. So one of the things that I do remember talking about in that first discussion was let's just try to, to define what an introvert is and, uh, you know, going around the room, like, what does it mean to call yourself or to label yourself an introvert? What are your thoughts on that? You know, from a psychology standpoint, we define introversion as really gaining your energy from being by yourself. So a lot of this reflection can be done on your own time. I know for me in particular, after a day of, or even just a class period of teaching, I, I know I need five or 10 minutes minimum to just recoup and think about what happened and the reasons why it happened. But I am, I really can't do anything in that five to 10 minutes. I need that time. And extroversion is where your energy is just, it's going to be there when there are people around you and you get your energy from those social interactions. And so introversion is a great kind of personality trait to have when you are a professor and when you've gone through, um, you know, a graduate school, it's something that actually helps us a lot because we have to be able to become these um, masters of, of our content and these scholars. Um, and you, you, you know, this plays really well into that ability, but it also means that sometimes we're not really trained well for the social context of the classroom. I literally was speaking with a freshman today who expressed interest at the beginning of the semester in becoming a professor. And I have no idea for a freshman what that even means. Like what, what is, what are they thinking? And so I was trying to give her, you know, some straight talk about what goes, you know, what goes into this career path uh, and all of that. And this was one of the things that I don't think she was fully uh, aware of, and why would she uh, as a freshman, that it's not, uh, especially the preparation for it is not social. It's not, you're not interacting with people a whole lot. You have, you have to sit in a dark room and, and chug out, you know, your research and crunch your data. And, you know, in the humanities, you might be in some dusty archives somewhere for weeks on end. It's, it's a, it's, it's a very, isolated um, kind of a experience and introverts, like you say, uh, might, might really thrive on that up to a point. Everybody's a little bit different, but um, if you're, if you're thinking about being a college professor means, oh, I get to, you know, have these wonderful, lively discussions all day long with my students. And it's all I ever do. It's like, no, 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 no. There's this, let me tell you what a PhD is. Right. And it's important for us to have those conversations, um, not to scare students, but just to give them a more realistic <laughs> outlook right. of what it might look like. Yeah. 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 Well, it, you had the have the the same kind of definition of this that that I do, at least when I think about my own experience, because I would identify as an introvert too, is right after class just sort of ask yourself, what do you want to do right after class? If you want, uh, if you really want to like oh, this class was great. I wonder if any of the students will stick around and talk to me for another 10 or 15 minutes. Wouldn't that be great? Or if you're like, okay, this class was awesome. This is great. But now I need to go into my office and just <laughs> shut the door. And I love my students, but I, if I don't have those 15 minutes, especially before my next meeting or whatever, like I'm just going to, I'm not going to be fully there. I'm not going to be hundred percent. Yes. I, I, that's my definition as well. Um, and it, it, it helps us to a point. It helps us with class preparation. It helps us with uh, publishing and it helps us with our research. So introversion and, you know, being an intellectual and being a geek and a nerd can help us. It even helps us in the classroom, right? 
who doesn't want a professor who loves the material so much that they geek out on it, that they nerd yeah. out? They want that, but students don't really understand also um, then how taxing it can be. And so the preparation component that Jessamine um, speaks about in this book, I think is really helpful. It's got some really useful tips. Yeah, yeah. And it, it occurs to me, you know, on, on one hand, she, she writes throughout here that, you know, not only is it going to be common for uh, for professors to be geeks, introverts, nerds, but maybe maybe even the majority because of 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 what goes into this, the type of person that's drawn to it. And yet there's there's a problem because there is in our minds, as you were talking about excellence, you know, teaching excellence, there is in, in our minds and probably many of our students' minds as well, an image of a very extroverted professor being like, that's the gold standard. That's the ideal. This, you know, this very gregarious, like just, you know, giving of, of, you know, himself or herself in a social way that many of us in higher ed just that doesn't feel authentic it doesn't feel natural right or we have to spend a whole lot of time and effort to achieve some of that and even right. then it, it might not look the same way uh, right. or across the same way to students but yes I absolutely agree with that I think our students do think um, that that is what a rock star professor looks like um, but then I I think about who have been master teachers here at Baylor and you know from my point of view, they aren't necessarily, you know, they might not be defined in that same way that students do. And because right. I think I am really concentrating on the effectiveness of the teaching and overall students, when they experience effective teaching and very thoughtful and, um, you know, intentional teaching practices that they, they are rewarded and they do, um, they do see it and they feel it. Yeah. Yeah. Does this, do you think that students are aware of it enough that it shows up in student course evaluations or or other kinds of survey because I know you do a lot of survey work with your students checking in with them not just at the end of the semester but throughout the, the semester uh, as well. well that is also that is one of the uh, reflective pedagogical practices that I engage in is that I'll, I'll do a survey at the beginning of class um, towards the beginning of the semester in the middle and then towards the end of the semester I think that having this the sets, the um, the evaluations of teaching my students, a one time point when we're all exhausted and they are looking at final grades and it, they're a lot of them are sick at this time during finals because of the perfect storm. Yeah. Um, it's hard for them to assess and to uh, give ratings of instruction at that time. And so I much prefer <laughs> giving my own assessments, although I do see value in sets. And I think um, that they are, there are pros and cons um, to assessing them, but they, they can be challenging in, in that way. Yeah. So really, we're starting to talk about what is in chapter one of this, of this book, awareness. And she speaks about awareness both uh, in terms of awareness of ourselves as instructors, but also awareness of our students and our students' behavior and experiences. Do you have any advice for how how best to learn about our students in in really useful ways? Um, you know, and so I I think this is a challenging assessment. Um, you know, as we look at SOTL, as we are 
you know, attend seminars for excellence in teaching, um, it is easy for us to undergo imposter syndrome. And it's also easy for us to have, you know, maybe a biased look at, oh, well, my students in this class did this, but my freshman students look like this. And so you have to make this kind of awareness and assessment for each class um, and probably every semester. Yeah. And right now, I think that that is true more than ever during the pandemic is my students have been more exhausted this semester than even in the last year when I thought that they would have been more affected by the pandemic. But coming back to -to face-to-face teaching after a year of hybrid and online has been extremely exhausting and hard for them um, to readjust to. And so I think that, you know, If survey is something that is useful, um, of course, we're talking about introverts and it takes energy and effort to (laughs) create these surveys and then to, you can't just give them out and then not, not utilize them. So then it takes more to, to utilize them and engage in best practices there. But that has been helpful for me um, just to assess, you know, what are the pronunciations for their names? I ask in class, but I also ask for that in a survey. Um, I ask for pronouns. I ask what they're excited to learn at the beginning of class. And I try to address that during the semester, you know, like, oh, Derek said that they were really excited to learn about false memories. So today we're going to talk about false memories, even though it was already yeah. the syllabus, but now I can make that student really feel like, you yeah. know, if they just during that moment in class, <laughs> were like, okay, I, I want to learn about false memories, but now they knew I was paying attention. So I take note of that. Yeah. Um, During the semester, I ask what's going well, um, what I can do better and what they can do better. And I try to give them resources if they point out things like, oh, I wish I could come to office hours, but nothing, you know, none of her office hours work for me. Oh, well, let me email this student and let them know that they could have also emailed me for an appointment. And even though I said that on the first day of class, they might not have been in a state of mind to have taken that in. So appointed email that is very kind, uh, but also addresses concerns in the middle of the semester when we're getting really just kind of, (laughs) we're grinding it out. (laughs) Um, Yep. I think that could be helpful. And then an end of semester reflection um, just to see how the semester went. But absolutely, I think that we come to our subject matter in a very different way than our students do, even if this is in their major. But especially we're going to have some challenges in um, our introductory level courses and our survey level courses because we have the knowledge bias. We have an expert blind spot. We know right already so much. And sometimes it can be hard to teach back to, because we don't remember exactly what it was like to not know it. Um, So hearing from students on what's working and what's not working throughout the semester has been really helpful for me. Yeah. I was just sitting, just uh, attending a uh, a, a a state mandated training on Title IX related things uh, this morning, and at the end of it, there was this this quiz that the that the facilitator was giving to us, and we were in a group, and we were all just supposed to like give our give our answer. I'm like, oh gosh, I feel nervous. What if I'm getting this wrong? And it's it's like, oh yeah, that's how our students feel like a lot of the times when we put them on the spot, and it's not wrong. It's just we just need to remember what that feeling is like because it's right. really easy to forget. It's so easy to forget. In fact, you know, my department chair and I talk a lot about this and he's like, oh, they're not you. They're not you, Karina. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You have to remember that A, you, you like this topic way more than anybody else in the room and B, you know way more about it. Right. And sometimes I, I have been doing this for several years and sometimes I find myself where I missed an important step and I have to mm. go back. But I think also modeling um, the fact that I am 
watching their faces and I see that, oh, something didn't quite click. Let me go back. You know, um, and muddiest points can be a good way of doing this as well to end a class. But yeah. I think also just in the moment, also fixing, you know, whatever needs to be fixed, you know, if it's giving another example, if it's going over more um, applications so that they will do well in whatever assessments we've chosen to give them in that class. Um, but it models also that we're trying really hard and sometimes we know the end point and they don't mm -hmm. know. That's right. Yeah. 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 So this is slightly off, off uh, on a tangent, but you mentioned the, just sort of the tiredness, the fatigue of your students. Now we're recording this in December of, of 21. So uh, we're, you know, we're coming up on two years of sort of pandemic reality here. And it is a little bit surprising. I think that, and I think it's a common experience that our students, our students are more fatigued this, this semester than they were even in the midst of the the pandemic. And I think that's true for faculty too. Uh, you know, working in the faculty development world, um, it's been harder this semester than it was during the, the height of pandemic when, when um, you know, we were dealing with lockdowns and, and things like that. And my theory is just the, the accumulative aspect of this, that, that there's been no real time to, speaking of what introverts need, just rest and re rejuvenate from you know, to recoup from sort of what we lost in terms of our energy supply during the pandemic. I'm just floating a theory. How does that sound to you? <laughs> Absolutely. And I also think that it is not, it's not just taxing for our students to have to reintroduce themselves to face-to-face -face exams. They, they have told me that, that that has been really challenging, that they've gotten used to taking online exams and now they're back to face-to-face. -to -face. Um, and then in-class presentations when they were used to recording, you know, and so there's this yep. whole readjustment. And then for also for us, we're, we're, we care about our students. And so I have found, and I am not complaining at all, but I have found that caring about our students is also very emotionally taxing and something that requires a lot of effort as well. Yep. So because I'm trying to notice who's in class, who's not, you know, where is there this, you know, this hole where I can submit a care team, um, you know, report or just reach out to this student and, you know, is there a pattern? What can I do to help? Am I the only person that is noticing this or is this in every class, you know? And so that also yeah. has been taxing. So I just find myself really unable to rejuvenate at all because I'm constantly trying to think through this and make sure I'm yeah. not missing someone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for the benefit of listeners, what, what size classes do you teach? So in, in those classes, those are about 30 students where I can really notice when, when students are absent and yeah. so 330 student and then 140 student class. And then mm -hmm. I also am part of a team taught course and that's 300 um, in that course. We only notice if they don't engage in our Canvas activity, right. unfortunately, um, just because it is such a large class. Yep, yep. So the awareness is not just about how we're aware of our students, but also our awareness of ourselves. And Newhouse points out in this book that a lot of the scholarship of teaching and learning doesn't pay a whole lot of attention or even downplays instructor identity markers. There's a quote on 24 that I just thought was really great. Uh, she says, women, women teach in different contexts than men. Professors of color teach in a different context than white professors. 
and anything they do in their pedagogical approaches and interactions with students will have a different impact on learning and teaching than it does for white cisgendered male professors. So when, when and I think this criticism is, is accurate too, uh, that the scholarship, the research doesn't pay enough attention to, to this. It creates a suggestion that what works for some uh, should work for all of us. And I think she, meet, she may even at points in the book kind of uh, try to dissuade us from even the language of best practices because it seems like there, that gives the impression that there's just like this universal way to teach that should, that should work if you're doing it right. So is this something that you've thought about before? Or how does this ring with you? Yeah, I think as much as we think about what, what's working for a specific population of students, freshmen versus upper level students and everything that they're bringing into the classroom. We also need to think about our role as well and our identity markers like gender, like ethnicity, like race. Um, For a lot of our students, sometimes, you know, we might be the only one. I'm the only female intro neuroscience professor, you know, in their introductory class. And so, um, you know, I'm, I might be that only one, and this might be the only science class they take at Baylor, you know, and so I might be the one scientist that, that they, you know, are, are going to see here at Baylor, um, just because it does count for an arts and sciences core um, in the distribution list of our uh, sciences classes. So we do see that it can play a role. Um, I, I try really hard um, my, in my courses to actually talk about it. Um, mm. This is not something though that I would say, just as you've pointed out, that everyone is going to be comfortable with or that would work for everyone. It is something that I have become more comfortable with as I have been in academia longer. So as a Hispanic woman, you know, I, I talk about that and I sometimes will bring in Spanish language into my courses and I will talk about, you know, the differences of, you know, growing up with parents that were from South America. Um, but I do think it is it can be different for students. Uh, sometimes I do receive feedback that sometimes I talk too much about my family or my background. And so I, I think some students really appreciate it. Um, but I also see that sometimes I get feedback of just like, we, it didn't help me learn. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, it's hard to teach to that middle. And I think that we all need to do what's comfortable for us to the point of we also need to try to be effective, which sometimes we, that means that we're going to be pushing up on what makes us comfortable or not comfortable. And um, I love her term of putting on her professor pants Um, (laughs) because I I thought that that was helpful. It's like, I'm not trying to embody every other neuroscience professor that I had while I was in college, which was a white male. Um, But instead Mm -hmm. I, I want to be authentically me. And this is what it means to be authentically me. Yeah. Yeah, and and just to take one example, just out of what you've already said, there is just the the, the gender aspect of it. Uh, I think that I I I share about myself quite a bit with my students, um, and I'm a white man, and never once have I read a student tell me that it was unhelpful or too much. So it's there, you know, it's very likely that there's a simple gender, uh, well, a gender probably gender and uh, ethnicity element. Uh, to it when you get those those comments from students right and but then I you know I do try to take it in and just as um, you know the author stated is that you know sometimes you kind of you take in that feedback and you put it away for a little bit 
(laughs) And then you come back to it and you're like, okay, what can I actually get from this feedback? Um, And so I I tried to also recognize that my students were probably stressed while they were um, in stressed while while engaging in their sets um, for all their classes, that they're making a very quick judgment. It's not actually, you know, throughout the semester, it's a one-time period. They might have been really uncertain about what their final grade was going to be like because, you know, in our department, uh, finals, final exams can play a substantial weight on their grade. So I try not to take it personally. That is something, again, that has gotten easier as I've been in academia. <laughs> that's That's right. Yes. Yeah. So do you have any, any ways that you will go about, because I know that you read in educational research and, and scholarship teaching and learning, have, do you have any advice for how to translate what you read into your own practice? You know, especially given what you said just in this last question of it's hard to take in information when we don't know sometimes what students are talking about or the identities of the professors who were engaged in these types of, you know, right. technological innovations. Sometimes it's hard to, to generalize. I kind of just, when I see something that I think might be useful for my students, I'll pilot it in a class. I might not put yeah. it in all of my classes because that might take too much time and effort for me and I want to be strategic. So I might yeah. Pilot it in one class that I'm, I think it might work particularly well. And then I'll ask feedback on how it's going and then how it went throughout the semester. You know, yeah. So when I read um, really engaging SOTL work, I, I try to take in of, okay, well, how could this fit into my course? What course objective would it be beneficial for? Do I have a project that this would be even better for my students if I engaged in XYZ? And so I try to mold it for the purpose of my particular class, instead of just, well, this is the excellent thing. So now I'm going to do all of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing that is sometimes really intimidating, especially about, uh, you know, like, like LD Fink uh, creating significant learning experiences, which is, you know, a, a, a modern classic and so many people really swear by it. But it's 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 so intense to to go from, you know, like a traditional course to like, no, I am completely thinking everything through this lens of the the learning goals and, you know, and mapping everything on like that is just that takes so much time and effort. Most people, for most people, it's very rewarding. And if you, get, if you have the support to do it, then by all means. But I think that for for most of us, it's more about what's 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 if we're reading something that is that is has some potential for our own classes what's one small way that i can incorporate this and as you said pilot it uh, which implies you're doing something small you're not committing big time to it and you're also assessing it along the way right and so you're ready to you're ready to toss it out or not use it for the next class if it just didn't work so you haven't overcommitted yourself to something that you're not quite comfortable with when when it's all said and done Absolutely. I, I love that. Um, and I, I think that that's exactly the way to do it is to think about how could this work for your particular class? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's really more of like a, like a James Lang small teaching uh, approach. Uh, and also that, I mean, that, that reminds me that this, the, this book that we're talking about is in a series from West Virginia <laughs> University Press that James Lang is the editor on. And, and there's just so many great titles in this in this series we could probably do separate podcasts on many of these different texts but anybody who's who's wanting a very readable uh sort of digests of the scholarship of teaching and learning 
these are these are very very good they're very well written so that, that's very helpful so one of the things that introvert teachers might overlook newhouse suggests is the importance of the first day of class particularly all those social aspects so what do you do on your first day of class that you know that maybe doesn't come naturally to you as an introvert that you have to learn and had to learn and really be intentional about so i i want to just go back for one second and you know think a little bit about how i was educated so when i was educated and sometimes it's still like this the first day of class was syllabus day and you got out early and so that was a model that i had um throughout my entire time and that's actually how i started because that was the model and I think that, you know, Newhouse does a great job of saying we have to learn how to be effective teachers. And syllabus day is just usually not a very productive use of our time. Not only can students read the syllabus on their own, I'm not saying that they will, but they can. <laughs> but they're, because they, they know they have this document, they're very likely not paying attention on that first day. Mm -hmm. They are filled with excitement, yes, but usually that excitement might be just because they're back. They're back. Yeah at Baylor after a break. Um, so what I do on the first day of class is something that did take really deliberate practice for me. And it took some piloting and it took, especially when it comes to timing and um, how large groups I need to do. Um, but I do a syllabus scavenger hunt where I ask them specific questions that they can find in groups um, about the syllabus. So they can rely on each other. And then I um, you know, ask specific groups as I go around the room. That has been helpful, um, but I don't spend the majority of the first day of class in that. Um, some of that or most of that time is actually going to be on an icebreaker activity, usually called Fast Friends. Um, it's a psychological icebreaker um, that actually comes out of our relationship literature. Um, but basically, it, it's a series of these big questions that if you wanted to become a best friend with someone that you would ask them. So like, what is the meaning of life? What was a dream that you had last night? If you had to talk with someone dead or alive, who would it be? And so those are interesting questions that have nothing to do with our class, but that model a couple of things. So I use discussion in my class pretty regularly every class day. So it opens up that idea that we're going to be talking to each other and that I expect it and that I like it. And also uh, it models the fact that sometimes the, the questions that I'll be posing don't have correct answers, um, that there are multiple ways right, of getting to an answer and that we're going to have multiple perspectives uh, to, to be learning from each other. And so I love that kind of activity um, for first day of class. And then, of course, you know, I ask what students are excited to learn um, and what they expect to learn. And sometimes, you know, they say, well, I expect to learn about memory, but I'm excited to learn about autobiographical memories. Um, and that can be the same thing. And sometimes it can be different, but I, those are some of the, the really intentional practices that I've done now for first day. Of yeah. Class. I'll give a, I'll give a shout out to our Baylor colleague, uh, Chris Rios in the graduate school, uh, because he, he uh, has a really helpful way of thinking about first 
the first day of class, the way he, the way he explains it is you're, it's a microcosm of your entire class and whether students, whether implicitly or explicitly students are going to take away from that. This is what this class is that that first day, they will put it in a category in their brain based on what experience they had on that first day. So if you, if you want to set up your class in a certain way, then do those things on the first day so that it's not a big mental shift day two, if, if on day one, you read the syllabus to them and let them out early. And on uh, day two, you're asking them to do all this interactive social stuff, because this is what you really want to do. They're going to be like, whoa, where did this come from? Right? So in other words, the way that uh, Rios says it is uh, after day one, that is 100% of their experience of that class. And you are trying to you are trying to move uh, something where they have from that 100% experience of what they have into something into some new territory. And that's a big lift. Yes. Um, I also really liked when Newhouse said that we want to have students respect our time, but we should also respect their time too, which means sometimes not letting them out early if we're going to right. expect them to be in class on time and there for the full time for every other class period. So modeling mm-hmm. the first day is also pretty important as well. That's right. Yeah. So you, you already used this language of reflective pedagogical practices and Newhouse definitely advocates this. What can you give us your own definition of what this what this means? Reflective pedagogical practices. You know, I think reflection can have a lot of different definitions, but I think overall, a reflective pedagogical practice is one in which we thoroughly engage in in what we are doing in the classroom. So, what worked, what didn't work, what can we do to make that to make the day go well or sometimes go better. And so it's going to take some time, um, some time out of our day to engage in these reflective pedagogical practices. I've already said, you know, earlier on that I need five to 10 minutes after each class. And so I jot down notes to myself on what went well and what didn't. Um, Sometimes if students are, you know, lined up to come see me, I'll jot it down really quickly, um, you know, right before they start talking to, because I don't want to forget also. Um, as well. And so if I don't have that five to 10 minutes for myself, I I just jot it down. But that's a practice that was given, handed down to me by Chuck Weaver in psychology and neuroscience. And it has been really helpful. Um, But also, I think that it can look different for every person. So some individuals will not have uh, as high a teaching load, you know, as I do. And so I can get some of my classes mixed up. And so I want to do that immediately. Others will be able to do that you know, 8 a.m. the next morning because they can. <laughs> right. I would yeah. totally forget. <laughs> Especially if you're teaching in the same room, right? That, <laughs> like you're the memory expert, but I'm sure that there's some research that says, oh, you're this the same settings. It's hard to differentiate, right? Right. She talks about, I think, you know, even as simple as like keeping just a hard copy of your syllabus, right? And writing mm-hmm. like, because you've already got the dates and the topics there. So you can just sort of jot in like what what went well, what didn't go well. Are there more formal ways that you've tried? Yes. And so, you know, uh, one of the things that I do is by those student surveys is then when I compile my responses, some of those, those, um, what I ask is for students to give tips for the next class periods, um, either for the next section or for the rest of the term, you know, and so, you know, tips for students and for, or for themselves. And I take those in and I really weigh those pretty heavily. Um, and so I use that as a main reflection component for myself. Yeah. Do you have any suggestions for understanding? And we've already talked about 
student uh, course evaluations and sometimes it's they say things that reflect biases and that sort of thing but do you have any suggestions for interpreting especially the open-ended thing uh you know answers that they give responses that they give I think we're, we all, this is a very subjective field of study. Um, and we've got a lot of it out there on what's effective and what's not so effective of these um, student evaluations of teaching, but especially in the open-ended, I do think that some, some students will take that time to just complain about everything and you'll, you'll kind of see it. Um, some students will actually give constructive criticism, and that's what I'm going to pay closest attention to. Um, so, you know, when students are coming at me for, you know, one reason or another, when when I was fostering some kids, I had a, a couple of students that said I spent, I, I spoke too long about my foster kids uh, in class, apparently, even though the topic was development. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and that was my experience of being a parent at that time. And so yeah. I think it's interesting. And, and I think then you just take that, you just take that information of what is actually constructive, what is useful for me and what seems a little bit more emotional. And they just had to get their words onto the paper to feel heard yeah. and they felt heard and it played that role for those students. But as far as what I need to take from it, you know, I'm still going to talk about my foster experience. <laughs> Especially if it's relevant, right? Especially if it's relevant, yeah. Yeah. So do you think that being an introvert is an asset or is it a liability in the process of, of reflective practices? I think it can be both. I think remarkably, though, that it is it, it, it can be an asset. And it is an asset for me. With, and so I spend a lot of time and energy on reflection because I want to reflect. I prefer to be by myself. <laughs> so it's mm -hmm. easy for me uh, to take time to reflect and to do that and to, to think about what I'm going to do for next class period and even next semester. Um, you know, sometimes you have an activity that lands and then sometimes it doesn't. And so thinking about what changed and sometimes it's me, sometimes it's my energy level, um, you know, because I had meetings all day long before a class. And now right. I know like, oh, I can't have, can't schedule that many meetings and then expect class to go as well because of the way that, you know, my identity is for my students. Yeah. Or I need to move that activity to a different day if I have that many <laughs> meetings that day. Um, but right. I do think that because we are, we are analytical, um, we, you know, love to think strategically and we love to solve problems. We love to see connections. I think that all helpful in reflection. I think that sometimes it can be a liability in that if it takes too much energy, we're not going to want to engage in it. Yeah. I just read recently and I'll try to find it for the show notes too, an article that was suggesting a really kind of a method of self reflective practices in teaching and one of the main helpful points I took out of that is it's it's a similar kind of thing where it's just like right after class, as soon as you can, you know, jot down your thoughts about what happened. But the author was making a point to be really intentional also about mentioning the contextual issues. So if it's, you know, if it's a really, really nice day after like a long stretch of bad weather, or if it if they're just coming back from a break, or if you just had, you know, a day full of really bad meetings or really good meetings, you know, like. Like it's not, it's not always going to be enough just to say, well, this, this activity bombed and, and then go, well, I either need to get rid of it or change it. Well, maybe not. Maybe you just need to have a better day uh, around that, around the rest of it, you know? 
So, but, but if you don't write that down, you're definitely not going to remember that, you know, weeks or, or semesters later that right. that might have been a contributing set of contributing factors. Yeah. I love that idea. I usually have been paying attention to, you know, what has gone on in my day without thinking about weather or, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or who won a big 12 championship. Or... That's right. Yeah. For, just for instance. Yeah. Just hypothetically. <laughs> just hypothetically. What might be driving student attention away from class? <laughs> well, one of the, you know, speaking of liabilities, one of the things that Newhouse points out is that uh, as as geeks and nerds, we we love our subjects so much. We we are so passionate about our subjects. We express those 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 that passion in different ways. But I think what is kind of across the true across the board is that when we when we are so passionate, we're so absorbed. We we're we're so expert in something that it leads to blind spots that really become um, troublesome in our, in our teaching practices. So there's a, it's a curse of knowledge, right? If you know something so well, not only do you, do you go faster than, than your, than your students probably would need you to, but you also tend to bundle concepts together that students are really just figuring out how they kind of work on their own and they don't have that whole mental schema that you do. And so there's, it, it means, as we said, that we forget what it's like to be a novice and especially mm -hmm. how much support beginners in our field uh, need. But Newhouse also hints at how uh, uh, passion blind spots, uh, meaning we have trouble for understanding or appreciation that, that students just don't or don't yet care about our, our field. Now, I know that you've taught larger introductory courses. So how do you navigate this when you know students just don't care as much as you do? Oh my goodness. There's, that's the struggle. And I think that that, that might be the hardest part of teaching for me, um, is that not only is teaching and learning a social interaction, you know, as Jessamine Newhouse says, but also the fact that sometimes you have students that don't understand the value of the education that you're trying to give them. And we are so passionate about our subject and in teaching the subject that we really just were at completely at odds of I'm on this shore and you are over there not caring. Like, yeah. Okay. What can I do to help you care? Because I really think this affects your life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so this is where I think though, that being a geek and a nerd and an introvert on all of those things and an intellectual in our field does play a huge role. I think that when we are so into, when we are so we, we so embody the uh, information that we're trying to get our students to understand, to learn, to grow into, um, that it's helpful for them to see how it affects their life. So if we are modeling, this is why it's so important for you to understand false memories, because you watch Law and & Order and you know, I do research on eyewitness testimony and false memories are a thing. And, you know, there are uh, reasons that we can mitigate, there are ways that we can mitigate, right? Um, false confessions and, you know, reduced conviction rates of people who are innocent and who are later freed. And that's a cost to taxpayer, you know? And so I think that when you get me on that subject, you can't help, but yeah. say, what? I really do understand now about false memories. And I do want to learn about how this affects the legal setting. And it's not just on TV, this affects lives. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> so being a geek and yeah. a nerd can be helpful in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Justice is at, is at play here. 
Right. You know? Yeah. 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 And our, and, and our, we all want our students to, to, to care, but we need to show them where it's already, our, our fields are already impacting their lives. And I think a big, a big struggle that we have, especially in our, in our American system is that students have so often been socialized in, in a K-12 experience that separates like life and quality of life from education in kind of in that intellectual way. Like, well, you learn stuff and because society is telling us that we have to go to school and because we need it for, uh, you know, for jobs or careers or, or whatever, but there's, there's very little inter, um, attempt to, to find cohesion between these things. And so we're, we get them into college and we think, oh, well, this is this time when they're going to find a, find, you know, the coherence between all these things. And especially for freshmen, we're fighting kind of an uphill battle, trying to, trying to give them uh, an educational experience in, in a way that's different than probably many of them. And I don't want to, there's great 12, K through 12 people and, uh, and they're, they're doing fantastic work, but there is kind of this bigger machine, right. That we're, that, that, that we, they're products of that, that we inherit when we get them at 18 or 19. Yeah, you know, and when we think about who our students are and what they what they think about learning, they don't they usually come to us not thinking about desirable difficulties or I think yeah. what, you know, this author says is uh, productive struggles. So they kind right. of lack this growth mindset. And so we can model that for them and I try to model that in class and then we can help um, structure activities and assignments that will help engage in that process as well, even when it's hard for them, you know? And so then I, I talk about my struggles as well. Like school did not come easy for me. I was not the student that could go to class and understood exactly what my teacher said. I had to work for it. I had to study for it, but look at where I am now. You know, sometimes it takes that effort. And yeah. do you think that, you know, um, I spent as much time in my OCHEM class as I did in my neuroscience class? No, <laughs> um, but I got a great grade in that class because I wanted to understand it, um, but I yeah. did even better and paid way more effort in my neuroscience classes because I loved it. And so I think that, that it's sometimes students need to hear um, a little bit more about what it took for us to get there. Um, and then also if we can model some of this growth mindset as well, I think it can be helpful. I have this theory uh, that, that it, just based on interactions with faculty and observing faculty teaching that the faculty that that do that work the hardest at being good teachers are ones who a um had k through 12 experience teaching and then they kind of bring much of that like that that just tenacity to to get students to learn with them into college or b who were not the greatest students so uh, I'll do a study someday and see if I'm if my intuition is right on that. But um, yeah. I would love to just get a panel someday of of professors who are like uh, who yeah, like I'll admit I was a bad student uh, because it you know if if you were if you were if you struggled in college um, then you have a different way of seeing your students' struggles. I think the, the empathy first semester easier. MBA as a first gen student was awful, you know, and you would probably not think it looking at, you know, then my graduate transcript, because it, I had to learn how to yep. study and what worked for me, because what worked for me didn't work for my roommate. Yeah. But having that kind of experience also lets me tell students what works for you is not going to work for the person next to you. And, <laughs> and then also as yeah. a psychologist, I'm able to say, you only are privy to your own thoughts. You don't know what that other person is thinking. And yeah, 
what it took for them to get here as well. And so I think that that can be helpful too. Yeah. Well, to our Baylor colleagues, uh, if, if you ever see Karina in the hallways or on campus and she cuts a conversation short or uh, walks the other way, she's not being rude. She's just an introvert and she needs to recharge in her office. So uh, send her an email <laughs> and say it with me. I'm right in that, in that same boat. Uh, Karina, thank you so much for joining the show. We really appreciate it. I had a great time. Thanks for the invite. Our thanks to Karina Malavanti for joining the show today. In our show notes, you'll see a link to Jessamine Newhouse's geeky pedagogy book and links to several resources related to our conversation, including L.D. Fink's Creating Significant Learning Experiences, James Lang's Small Teaching, our ATL teaching guide for the first day of class, and David Purcell's article on teaching and reflective practice through daily writing. That's our show. Join us next time for Professors Talk Pedagogy.